Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Courtney. And this is the Dance Better Podcast. This is our platform to shed some light on the impact ballet training has on the mental health of both current and former dancers. Together with some amazing experts, we're discovering what things dancers can do to help counteract some of those habits and ideas that might not be serving them. So keep listening to hear real stories from real dancers, mental health professionals, and many more to help you dance better. Hey everyone, this is Courtney and today Sarah and I are going to be discussing how anxiety has affected us personally as young dancers and some of how some of that is still lingering a bit today. <laughs> yes, we are also going to be exploring the common symptoms of anxiety, especially in kids. And if you're a teacher or a parent of a young dancer, we'll be giving you some great resources on where to find help and how to talk to parents if you feel like one of your students is struggling. We also want to make sure we include that neither one of us are healthcare professionals. We're not mental health professionals of any kind. Uh, anything that you hear us say are just things that we've experienced or things that have helped us in our own lives and should not be considered as medical advice. We will be posting the resources we're using that you'll hear in the episode in our show notes. So feel free to click on those and explore those resources. And if anything that you hear today does resonate with you, we encourage you to seek out those resources or talk to your doctor to find the best healthcare professional for you. We also wanna mention that anything we say in this podcast is a reflection of our dance experience as a whole and not reflective of any one teacher, studio, or company. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Courtney. Hello, hello. How are you? Hi. I'm good. It's so good to see your face. How are you? I'm well. I am well. Yeah? What's so, going on? What's going on with your life? Okay, to give a quick um, life this is, update. This, this is the life of Courtney. So yesterday I about broke my nose and I was what? sitting on the couch. <laughs> I was sitting on the couch. I was trying to um, navigate my dog on one side. My, I, for those of you who don't know, I have a dog. She's 13 and a half. She's blind. Mm. She's her hearing is going. So she's very clingy right now, but I was trying to do some work on the couch so I could sit with her. And I somehow, when I was getting situated, my MacBook flung into my face oh and my I've, got a, I've got a nice pretty bruise on my nose. So oh my goodness. That's what's happening in the life of Courtney today. Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, oh, on the you. unfortunately, I did lose my kitty last week. Um, oh. So sad face. Yeah, it's been yeah. tough, but she had a wonderful life, and she was able to pass it home and surrounded by all of her fur brothers and sisters, and my yeah. husband and I. So it was it was a very uh, life-changing experience, um, sure. for the better, really. I mean, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. So yeah. things are, you know, starting to kind of get to a new normal around the house. And, um, we're going to do a little memorial type thing for her with a little shadow box and all that good stuff. So yeah. not the best news in the world, but you know, that's life and, yeah. uh, we're soldiering on. So it's good. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, um, Hopefully that, you know, I, I, I have no words other than when I've lost a pet time, Aww. time helps, but 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And we're surrounded by so many friends and family and we have, we have a great support system. So we're, we're doing okay. So yeah. Kind of segues a little bit into our topic today. (laughs) Anxiety. Welcome to the Dance Better Podcast. So today guys, we are diving into how things from our childhood and early years of dance experience and anxiety and how that all meshed together. So to kick us off, I wanted to give a definition of anxiety clean and clear, clear, so we know everyone knows what we're talking about today. So this definition comes from psychologytoday.com. They say, anxiety is a mental state of both distress and arousal set off by sensing uncertain danger. It encompasses both cognitive elements, feelings of worry or dread and anticipation of some future bad outcome, and physical sensations, such as jitteriness and a racing heart. Although unpleasant, occasional bouts of anxiety are natural and sometimes even productive by signaling that something isn't quite right, anxiety can help people avoid danger and become and make important and meaningful changes. But persistent, per- pervasive anxiety that disrupts one's daily life, whether at school, work, or with friends, can be the mark of an anxiety disorder. And I have some facts for you as well. Um, this first one is from an- the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Generalized anxiety affects six million adults or 3.1% of the U.S. population in any given year. So that's a pretty big number. (laughs) And on top of that, women are twice as likely to be affected. So I thought that was pretty revealing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But today we're going to be focusing a little bit more on children. So according to the CDC, Among children aged 6 to 17 years old, anxiety diagnoses increased from 5.5% in 2007 to 6.4% in 2011 and 2012. That's the latest statistic that they have. I'm sure that now, of course, with COVID, that number has probably skyrocketed. Uh, So I would imagine. Definitely something to look into. Also, according to the CDC, six in 10 children, so that's 59.3% of American children aged three to 17 years old with anxiety received treatment. So only around 60% of kids who are diagnosed are actually getting treatment. So that's a little bit revealing too, a little bit scary there. Um, So among children living below 100% of the federal poverty line, more than one in five, so that's 22%, had a mental, behavioral, or developmental disorder. So that's not necessarily just generalized anxiety, but also these behavioral disorders, which are very likely to be overlapping as well. And then the last statistic from CDC is that related age and poverty level are affect the likelihood of children receiving treatment for anxiety, depression, or behavior problems. So, you know, kids who are in situations that are not ideal, uh, that are below the poverty level, are not likely to get treatment. Another resource that we'll be using today is uh, from NEMORS, which is a children's health non-for-profit organization. So they deal with all sorts of health topics for kids, not just mental health, but they have a really great resource for parents for kids with generalized anxiety disorder. We'll be sharing a little bit of that uh, later on in the podcast. Okay. I mean, of those, of those stats... Some of them I'm surprised by, some of them I'm not Uh surprised by, 
And uh-huh. I mean, for me, my wheels just start turning as far as you mentioned the 60% did receive care. Th- that other 40%, did they not have access to care? Mm-hmm. Did, were they in a situation where mental health isn't recognized by their family members? When you're a child, you can't, you can only advocate for yourself so far. You don't have the wallet, the purse string, so to speak, to pay mm-hmm. for mental health services, drive to free mental health services, what, if and when they exist. So that's yeah. something that isn't wonderful. Right. <laughs> this yeah. is really kind of starting off on a sad note. I know. <laughs> it's not our yeah. intention, guys, but this is a very real and a very raw subject matter. And yeah, it's not always going to be comfortable for sure. Right. But that's why we're talking about it, right? To kind of break yeah. down, break down some of that stigma and just have more conversation about it. So yeah. As far speaking as you're, of being uncomfortable, speaking of <laughs> today, we are, you know, as we go into it. So, first experiences with anxiety as a yes. young child in general, and then also at the studio. Sarah, what was, what's your earliest memory? What's your earliest memory oh. of anxiety? So, um, in episode one, we, we kind of gave our timeline and rundown of our experience. So, when I was age three until 12, I was at a competition studio. So more focused, definitely had a great ballet program, but the competitions were more focused on like jazz and tap. So um, at the time, I was the youngest in that competition team. So at the time I was nine, all of my peers in that competition team were more like 12, 13, and I think there might have even been a 14-year-old in in the class at the time. So I was one of the youngest, or probably the youngest on the team, and I think that really had a big effect on me because I was expected to be able to do things that the 12, 13, 14 kids were doing, and I was only nine. So um, that was, there was a lot of pressure on me to be as good as the older kids. Um, I was expected to know choreography. That may have been fine for my technical skill, but I may not have been in a socially or emotional or mentally mature place to be able to meet those standards. Sure. So that could potentially have caused some, some of that anxiety. So I was expected to know choreography and I was expected to do choreography that was probably not appropriate for someone under the age of 18, in my current opinion. And there were also costume choices that I don't believe were appropriate either. Um, I always felt from age nine on probably that I needed to look older and to be older. I don't think that that's a uncommon thing for little kids to want to be grown up but I was in a group of girls that I saw four or five times a week so they were my main group of people that were experiencing adolescence and I was only nine so Mm -hmm. for me my peers were not my peers so to speak yeah um so I felt a lot of pressure to look older physically and to act older Mm-hmm. So I think that probably also contributed to some of my anxiety. For example, mm-hmm. I remember it was summertime. We were getting ready for a uh, vacation and I wanted a two piece bathing suit. Uh-huh. 
and I tried one on and then of course I was nine so I had a typical nine-year-old body and Mm -hmm. I cried because I didn't look right what I considered to look right in a bikini Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, looking back, oh. like, of course you shouldn't be like worried about that, but I was. Um, oh. So yeah, I think that was probably one of the first body dysmorphia things that I remember when uh-huh. it goes with, it, that definitely fed my anxiety. A little bit later in junior high and high school, I was very thin, but I was called bubble butt. That was my, oh. one of my nicknames. Uh Um, just because the musculature of my body, the way that it's formed, (laughs) my butt always looks a certain way. And that was something that I had to deal with. So that Mm -hmm. was really difficult. Um, and I also feel like my body didn't necessarily fit in with, um, so my mom is this, she's beautiful. Hi mom. Love you, mom. She's a gorgeous woman. And she's always looked many years younger than her age. And she's just been blessed with this metabolism that's like off the charts and never really had to worry too much. She always wanted to be healthy, but she never really had to worry too much about gaining weight necessarily. And so um, when I had a different body type than her, I always felt, you know, frustrated about that. And she, she didn't do anything to make me feel bad about myself in any way. It was just the reality of this is my role model in front of me and I don't look like her. So that was really hard. It's understanding that perception of here's this perceived expectation in front of you, both with your peers, you're talking about, you know, being the young kid with the older kids. And then even in your home setting, having your, you know, the woman you look up to the most having a different appearance Mm -hmm. than you. Yeah. It's, it's hard to navigate that for, I think it's hard to navigate that for any child in general. And then you put the pressures and expectations of about, you know, dance training, ballet training on top of it, it just kind of amplifies this anxiety (laughs) of, you know, occurring in that whole situation. Yeah. So just my real quick, my um, symptoms that I experienced Mm -hmm. that I recognize now were anxiety. I had a lot of stomach problems as a kid all the time. Um, I had phantom, what I'm calling phantom sickness, where I would go to the nurse and swear that I had a fever and I would have this horrible stomach ache and all of these symptoms that never really amounted to anything, but I would have to be picked up by one of my parents to go home because Mm -hmm. I just couldn't handle it. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't go out to eat with my parents at a restaurant without spending about a half an hour in the bathroom, whether I was just like sweating, butterflies, racing pulse, nausea, all of those classic panic attack associated type symptoms I would have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those would happen in class. And I started to carry around a little roll of Tums with me in my bag. I was never without my stomach medicine just in case I started to feel that way. And I don't know if the Tums actually helped my symptoms uh, chemically, but just having them, I think, was a way for me to go, okay, this will solve my problem and then I'll calm down. So I was able to calm down. Right, right. So for me, for me, I think uh, as far as symptoms of anxiety, I definitely was the... In general, I worried a lot. 
and it, uh, it was just like, oh, she worries a lot. Courtney, she's just sensitive. She just worries a lot. And to an extent, there is that, but it does cross a line into developing a, an anxiety disorder at a young age. And I think a lot of when I've, when I've reflected back, there's stomach issues is really the only physical um, symptom I felt at the time. But a lot of it is from realizing now it's from waiting for the other shoe to drop is kind of where my worry had oh. come from and kind of all this, this repetitive cycle that I've reflected back of always trying and it not being enough, always trying and it not being enough, always trying and it not being enough. And this worry of, am I going to please them? Am I going to like, there's just that the worry yeah. is the best word for it. Right. And to an extent that it, gives you stomach issues and you know creates this I know it sounds strange potentially from such a young age but this fear of failure that can be so um encompassing debilitating debilitating (laughs) Debilitating. there's the word and it's interesting having this conversation with youth in mind right the focus is in our early childhood years that fear of failure that fear of disappointing your teacher on one hand it does lend its way into motivation and drive and you're going to work hard and you create this worth work ethic and you create this discipline but where's the line where does it go too far where you're still fostering a good environment and you're teaching kids how to be disciplined but not in such fear that they're like having anxiety outside the studio about what's going to happen tomorrow when they go to the studio, right? There's, there has to be, in my opinion now, 18 years later, there has to be a a middle ground here that I think we need to look for. And to segue into that, um, kind of my first experience with, in my opinion, body dysmorphia goes along with anxiety, especially when you're talking about young dancers and dance training, because it's that they're, they're very inter, interconnected. And for me, my earliest memory of body dysmorphia, we're just going to get a little raw here. Um, I was, my cellulite was called out when I was 10 years old. And now I can say that as a sentence, but it took until my early 20s to be able to understand when I looked at my body now, where did that thought come from? Who told me that wasn't okay? Where did I get this notion that my body isn't enough? And yes, there's society standards. There's different things in the world that make girls, young women, women feel certain ways about their body. However, your dance instructors should not play a negative role in that conversation, in my opinion. And off-the-mark comments at a young age should not be blown off anymore, in my opinion. We have to set a standard for what's acceptable and what's not because when certain phrases, when certain words are still very triggering 18 years later, maybe they shouldn't have been said in the first place. Well, so. I think it's also important, I, for, for first of all, I just keep seeing the little little Courtney, the picture that we posted on Instagram of our first episode with us as little little baby dancers. I just want Uh to like 
take that Courtney's little face in my hands and just look at her and tell her how beautiful she is and what a wonderful dancer she is. Sorry, I'm trying really hard not to cry right now (laughs) Um, because that that story hit me so hard, Courtney. And I hope you know now, like you're a beautiful person and I'm happy to know you. (laughs) I appreciate that. And, and And, I mean, that's why we're having the conversation and yeah, you know, we'll, we'll talk into a little bit more throughout the episode of some other things, Mm -hmm. but I just wanted to put that out there because that's something that I think, I mean, that's my story. That's something I didn't even share what exactly was said to me, but that's, I know what was said to me, but I think people, Mm -hmm. other dancers can relate to certain moments in their training, certain things that were said to them that have stuck around and, and let's, let's do better. (laughs) So kind of the, the last little piece to that, as far as my anxiety at a young age, um, I was called detail oriented. And again, to an extent, detail oriented Mm. can be a very good thing, but at what point does it cross the line into perfectionism? And I just, it has to be perfect. And I would get so focused. And I also am not the fastest person. (laughs) I have a reputation for being slow and meticulous. And um, fast is not my speed. It's not my style. And that's okay. Everybody has their, (laughs) has their quirk. Um, But so much of that, I think of in my formative years, how much of that perfectionism played a role into how I developed my habits for editing and processing and thinking and overanalyzing and overthinking. And mm-hmm. it's been interesting to reflect back a little bit on some of yeah. that. So, so transitioning out of that, Sarah, how did mm-hmm. you witnessing, right? Taking it outside of yourself. What was your experience with your peers? What did, what was kind of the studio culture with anxiety for you? So moving out of that sort of competition focused studio into my pre-professional ballet studio. Um, It was a pretty big studio. So, and I was now in a class with my peers. So people who were my age and similar developmental stages and things like that. But I I felt like I was definitely behind in my technique. So it's funny because I went from like little uh, big fish in a little pond (laughs) Uh to little fish in a big pond. So I kind of Uh made that switch and I felt really, really anxious that I wouldn't catch up with my peers. So a lot of practicing at home, what you were just talking about, that detail-oriented perfectionism really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, I was the kind of kid that would easily get flustered. And that definitely carried over into my professional career as well. So mm-hmm. I would be given choreography and at this pre-professional program you were expected to like pick that choreography up in nanoseconds (laughs) right (laughs) and I would have all these thoughts swirling around about me not being good enough and oh I don't have the extension I can't balance I can't turn I can't 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 and at the same time trying to process new choreography and spit it out (laughs) Mm -hmm. without messing up because every Every correction that I got, even if it was given to me in a caring or loving way it, and not an abusive way, I would still internalize that as something negative and it would just build on my mountain of anxiety. And then mm-hmm. it would make it more and more difficult for me to memorize choreography or sure. to apply a correction the first time. Such a snowball effect there. Yes. Yeah. So I had a lot of instances where I felt 
like I was slowing my class down or if I was in the, we had like a student company where we were learning, you know, choreography for outside performances. So I oftentimes felt like I was slowing the class down because Sarah messed up again or, you know. That's, a, that's such a hard thing for a child. Yeah. And I, I was told, I was told a number of times that I was irresponsible because I wasn't prepared with choreography or and you know part of that might have been true I don't want to say that um all of my shortcomings were because of anxiety because I was a kid so I was learning on how to be a good student and how to be a good dancer and how to be responsible I I think I would have had more success had I been able to manage this anxiety better for Mm -hmm. sure (laughs) I mean we're talking about how this anxiety plays into different things at the studio I do want to also mention there is, like the definition from psychology today said at the beginning, mm-hmm. there is a certain level of anxiety that can be productive and is normal, so to speak. So for me, when I was thinking about like anxious moments, there's also the anxious moments of, ooh, first point shoes, new roles, new teachers, new levels, right? There's, there's a level of excitement and anticipation that is healthy. It's just when it's when it crosses that line and starts affecting mm-hmm. your memory, like your Yes. Your, and focus focus yeah. right mm-hmm. um that's where you know the, you know it's something to start to look into a little bit yes. more and then and then also as far as how that's affecting students and peers in general our early years are a little different and I can remember I'm just bringing all the intensity today bring it all Courtney I I mean when I think about how it When I think about my own experience with anxiety, this is how I felt at that time. Thinking about how peers were experiencing it too, it's awful to say, but it was such a, not necessarily a common occurrence. It didn't happen all the time, but it was such an okay occurrence. It was a, it was allowed. It was not a big deal that we would be like either holding back tears in class or crying afterwards because of fear of disappointment or fear of um, failing to an uncertain, unhealthy level, that's, that, that was just like, oh, well, you're just really dedicated. Well, you're just really passionate. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when all the peers are experiencing this same culture and everyone's very supportive of each other, you know, I never felt alone in this struggle of, quote unquote, not being enough, but that's where it just starts to be accepted as okay and everybody you know, we're all just in this boat of struggle and it's going to be, you know, one day you'll be a professional dancer and it will all be worth it. And this like bright, shiny rainbows on top of this really deep and somewhat, (laughs) somewhat dark (laughs) subject matter issues. And so it's interesting, like when I've thought back about how my peers were related, how like how the interpersonal relationships at that age occurred relating to anything about anxiety, it was all very Okay, I wouldn't even say it was brushed under the rug. It was like no glorified just to some extent. Level. Well, yeah. I'd like to say something about that because that that really sparked a memory for me. Okay. Uh, there was a point in time where I was taking ballet classes. This is during my pre-professional training. Mm-hmm. I was studying at my main school, but then I was also taking a couple classes at a different studio because I wanted a better part in their Nutcracker. <laughs> Okay. Of all things. And I figured if I took a class there that I would be more noticed and it worked. I did get a better part in Nutcracker. That was my last year as a child in a children's role. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but so I did, I think, one semester at this school, and there was a group of girls in my class who were the favorites. There were three of them, and they were sort of what I perceived as the teacher's favorite students. They were always um, corrected first. They were always used as an example and things like that. So I kind mm -hmm. of looked up to them, even though they were my peers. There was there were stories, and again, I don't know if this was true or not, but this is what I heard. So trigger warning for anyone out there with eating disorders, you might want to fast forward for 15 seconds. Um, but there was a group of girls that would have parties where they would get together to binge and purge together. Sarah, goosebumps. And I was never invited to one of these parties. And I always thought that if I were better, if I wanted it more, if I really, really wanted it, that, that I would be invited and that I could, I could be skinnier and I could be more committed to my craft, to my art. And if only, if only I had that level of commitment, it would happen for me. What a messed up thought. <laughs> but poor little, so, so here's Courtney, poor little baby Sarah. You are yeah. beautiful. Your body is enough. Your technique is enough. Thank you. Yeah. So anyway, that, like, I, I wasn't even planning on talking about that. It just came up when you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's where, I mean, we're sharing our own experiences, right, on this podcast, but I can't relate to that one. As, as strange as our culture was, there wasn't that much, um, in my um, awareness anyway, there wasn't very much of that kind of stuff going on. But it's, it's so prevalent in the, our, our dance community, our dance culture. Mm -hmm. I hope anyone listening can hear, hear these moments and understand whatever that moment looked like for you. You're not the only one who's Mm -hmm. been exposed to that who's had to go through that who as an adult is having to process that and 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 here's me getting all <laughs> encouraging and it's gonna be okay it is yeah. hard and difficult to reflect back and understand those you know each of these moments of our lives together that's what built us into this adult now it's okay to reflect back and mm -hmm. process now that you kind of have an a more well-rounded understanding of your mental health yeah. and your goals as an adult. So, so Courtney tangent there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so moving on, Courtney, yeah. can you talk a little bit about outside the studio? Um, if you were experiencing anxiety outside the studio, how that manifested all that good stuff. So for me outside the studio, I mentioned a little bit, but it was very much Courtney's, this baby Courtney, sensitive, <laughs> worries a lot, detail-oriented, that kind of um, feel. And kind of, I, I guess to segue also kind of into how my parents responded to that anxiety. In, child, in childhood, quote-unquote childhood, those early years, I don't think it was recognized yet that that's what was going on or that it was that it had crossed that line into anxiety and just realizing just this idea that I, I worry a lot but it's okay but I didn't 
really think anything of it as myself at that age. My parents didn't think enough of it or like it didn't really manifest into, okay, let's do something about this. It was just kind of there and it was okay. And it was just who I am, Mm -hmm. which was okay. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, we can't constantly go back and think, well, what if this and what if that, but that to just share, I mean, that's, that's how I grew up, right? I was having these experiences at dance, but it was just kind of either made light of or accepted to an extent. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing that I experienced at the studio was endorsed as being great, but it was just like, oh, that's just a part of pre-professional training. Like it was just a very casual, it was very casual. It was all very casual. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were very supportive of everything, but it wasn't, it was just kind of outside of the bubble as far as knowing what's even the awareness. Do you, the awareness of it, right? Yeah. And, you know, even as far as bo- body comments and things like that, it was just kind of brushed off, kind of joked about. And that's where, I mean, now as I've gone through therapy myself and understanding where these thought patterns came from, but then also having a lot of conversations with my mom and with my sisters and us all realizing, hey, maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't so healthy. Yeah. <laughs> How did my parents respond to my anxiety? They didn't. Do I hold them accountable for any of that? Not necessarily because I wouldn't like it it was not, it's not like I went to them and said, I have a lot of anxiety or my teacher Mm -hmm. said, Hey, you you know, she needs some additional resources and they didn't do it. Like there was always support. There was always love. There was always understanding. It was just both my parents and myself. We just had no awareness that this was something that needed to be looked at at the time. Yes. And I feel like too, we, you and I come from slightly different time periods. So when I was young dancer slash teenager, it was like early to mid nineties, early mm-hmm. mid and like the nineties basically. Yeah. And so that was a different time period. And a lot of the stuff was even less talked about or even recognized. Mm-hmm. I know that my mom, when I was having what I recognize now was probably a panic attack my mom would breathe with me. So she would help me to like breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And I just remember her saying that to me to help me calm down. So that was a little tool that she, she supported me with. But one thing that really, I think shows that snowball effect we were talking about before where my anxiety would get me flustered and then I would Mm -hmm. mess up. What is on point? (laughs) For me. I roll. She rolled her eyes for those of you who are listening. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they could go even further back in my head. Um, <laughs> as you all know, fuetes are a standard thing that you have to be good at. You have to do them at auditions. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a fact of life of being a ballet dancer. And they terrified me. I mean, actually terrified me. I think I talked a little bit in uh, our last episode with Terry how I was always told I was a jumper, not a turner. So that in and of itself right there Fuete's on point. I mean, hello, Mm -hmm. you're a bad turner. So (laughs) it would get so bad, my anxiety about them, that I would fall out of the preparatory pirouette. Like I couldn't even get my leg out. I was Mm -hmm. so anxious about it. Mm -hmm. And I would spend hours a week, you know, before class, after class, between classes, working on my fuetes, or even just turns from fifth to, to build up my strength. And they were mm-hmm. always something that haunted me. And I remember my mom, so we were talking about ways that 
our parents, you know, helped us to deal with anxiety. Mm-hmm. My mom told me one day, she said, Sarah, your point shoes don't control you. <laughs> you control your point shoes. And I mean, of course she was right, you know, that right. <laughs> I was allowing this idea that I was a bad turner to take over to the point where I was not even capable of doing a single pirouette without just like falling on my face. Uh-huh. So that's for me, that's a really good example of my anxiety manifesting in a way that just totally inhibited me from succeeding. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> and I just want to let you guys know, we mostly have not shared this stuff with one another before the yeah. podcast. So we're kind yeah. of processing each other's stuff right now. Too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hearing it for the first time, it triggers different thoughts. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we've talked a lot about different things from those years. For you, I know we're, we'll talk a little bit more. We'll do another episode, you guys, develop, talking more about teen years and into adulthood, about how that has additional things that have come up as you go through maturing, both physically and mentally, in those teen years. Different things arise versus when you're, you know, 12 and under. As far as thinking about those things from your early years, Sarah, what's sticking with you the most? I know we'll probably go into imposter syndrome in a later episode, but <laughs> mentioning that, but then also some other things, what do you feel like is, yeah. is carried with you the most into mm-hmm. adulthood? So yeah, I think imposter syndrome is something we can definitely do an entire episode on. <laughs> um, so I won't delve too deeply in it here, but that is probably my number one way that anxiety has manifested in my adult life. Mm -hmm. So thoughts that I'll be found out that Mm -hmm. my experience is not enough to be doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. If I'm invited to guest teach at a prominent ballet school, my first thought is, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm like you said earlier, waiting for the other shoe to drop, just waiting for that email to come and say, oh, I'm so sorry. We made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we didn't actually think we were hiring you. We were trying to hire someone else. <laughs> oh, sorry. We got the wrong Sarah. <laughs> yeah. The wrong Sarah Shiver, which my name is impossible to spell and pronounce. So the chances of that happening are pretty slim. I mean, this episode is, has been great, but also very anxiety inducing. So I currently have butterflies in my stomach right now. And I'll tell everybody who's listening that I am lying underneath my weighted blanket (laughs) Yes, my other cat at my feet and he's taking a nap, but he keeps me calm. So, um, yeah, there's so many ways that anxiety really intervenes in my life right now. But I will say that talking to my therapist weekly, I I talk to her once a week, Mm -hmm. has really just knowing that I have that time set aside for myself in the week. Yes. Has just knowing that she's there to talk makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Just knowing I can, that I have that hour. Yeah, absolutely relating to that. And I mean, we'll, we'll probably do an episode talking about more tips and things related to um, like actionable things you can implement in your daily day to day. But for me, that's been very helpful. Even no, like you said, knowing that it's there to go talk about having this thought, having this triggering experience, having this whatever it was that starts making my anxiety wheels go run races, knowing that, okay, I have this thing that I'm worried about or that is giving me anxiety. I'm going to store it in a little file 
I, which I actually type it into the notes app on my phone. And I say, look, nice. this, this is here, but I'm not going to spend the next four days until my appointment worrying about it. I'm going to put it there. I know I'm not going to forget about it. She's going to help me process it from her professional perspective. And I don't, I do not allow myself to dwell on it. And that's something that has taken a lot of years to learn, but that can be really helpful. And I know we kind of got, yeah. <laughs> we got talking into um, methods as versus um, like triggers. Um, but yeah, so you mentioned the imposter syndrome and, and things like that. So anything else lingering for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think all of those early thoughts about not slowing the class down or not remembering something fast enough or not feeling like I'm focused enough. That's definitely affected me throughout my adulthood. So I went yeah. to massage school with you and that was a, a really tough program that we went through. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably one of the best in the country. It's a great school, but it had very high expectations. And uh, I suffered from testing anxiety Mm -hmm. I was even given special testing accommodations when I was in college. So I would go to a special testing room where I got mm -hmm. to wear headphones and, you mm -hmm. know, no distractions and all of that. And that really helped me. Mm -hmm. But so I think all of that stuff affects me every day. Yeah. I do yeah. feel like it's just knowing about it, understanding it. I can actually, I feel like I can talk myself down, so to speak. Uh-huh. I'm getting better at recognizing, okay, what is my body feeling right now? How is that affecting the way that I'm acting or what I'm saying to other people? Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times the anxiety can manifest itself in speaking to people in a way that's maybe not the best or making decisions that are probably not in my best interests and things like that. So I feel like I'm getting better through therapy. I'm getting better at recognizing those things and not doing them, <laughs> but also recognizing what the triggers are and learning techniques to calm mm -hmm. anxiety down. And I don't know why that, that just sparked my brain over here as far as you know, recognizing what that was, whatever that moment was, whatever that triggering thing is something that has really helped me and kind of, I guess, segues into how this is like how these early years have come with me <laughs> into adulthood. Um, but understanding that when I have negative thoughts about, about my body image, about my, you know, perfectionism and things like that, understanding that the thought that I'm not enough is only there because that's what someone once said to me and my brain latched mm -hmm. on and said, that's truth. Yes. And understanding that when I am looking at myself in the mirror, when I pass down the hallway or when something happens and I hear a voice or I hear a phrase or I hear a word, understanding that my brain is only giving that to me because it was at one point like received that information. And I get to say, Nope, we're not listening to that anymore. For myself, for anxiety, um, I've been doing some cognitive behavioral therapy, which if mm -hmm. you're in the world of mental health, you know that's a common um, treatment for anxiety, and it's been very beneficial for me, but it's understanding that you can rewire your brain and transition those thoughts that at one point you brain, your brain holds so true of this was said, and it is truth to 
actually that's one person's opinion and that's not how I'm going to identify anymore. And that's a really, it's a really intense thing to just kind of say so casually, but it really is as simple as changing what you think, because when you're stuck in that, I'm not enough. It's like you said, it seeps out into your words. It seeps out Mm -hmm. into your actions. It seeps out into the world around you, whether you mean to or not. We've all heard that quote, you are not your thoughts. Yes. Yes. I don't know who said that, but we, we, I'm, I'm sure if you're anywhere from 20 to 40 years old and you're on Instagram, you, you've seen that somewhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's so, it's so important for us to stay here because just because you think something does not mean it's reality. That's yes. Yes. Not necessarily true. Yeah. And Another thing too that I I saw recently that I've seen many, many times is every single time you have a a thought about yourself or you say to yourself, you're not enough, or you look in the mirror and you say, what, you know, what's wrong with this? Why is this this way? Would you say that to your sister? Would you say that to your friends? Goosebumps again, Sarah. You know, would you? And most of the time, the answer is probably no. Because mm-hmm. you love that person and, you know, yes, I might have a bubble butt. No matter what size I am, it's just going to be there. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. In fact, these days in fashion, it's actually desirable. So that's okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's really yeah. just understanding. Um, you're talking about not saying it to your friend, not saying your it best to friend. your sister, mm-hmm. right? And it's very interesting when I thought about how, like what my self-talk was like previously and transitioning to something that's more friendly to my own brain, going from this place of talking down on myself to kind of being neutral. And I got very curious on, Mm -hmm. I had like a period of time and honestly, this was in quarantine guys, because I'm in my house all the time looking, you know, walking down all the hallways. (laughs) 14 million times a day because there's nowhere to go. Every time I would like have a triggering thought, I would stop and be like, Courtney, where did that come from? Why are you thinking that? And, you know, the answer was not always ballet training. Sometimes it's things, you know, from family events and things from travel, Mm -hmm. like things from magazines, things from TV, whatever the thing is. But sometimes it was dance training. And that's where being able to turn that perspective around and say, that's not how I choose to talk to myself anymore um, yes. is really, really important. I, I think yeah, I do also really to kind of like wrap back to where we're talking about um, the imposter syndrome. I do have that a little bit, but yep. for me, it was not as much that I'm going to be found out because this is going to sound so strange. But to me, the, the, the idea with imposter syndrome is there's hope there. And oh. like, you think you're, you think you are good enough, but you're in this situation where you're second guessing mm-hmm. yourself. So you think mm-hmm. they just aren't finding me out maybe. Whereas for me, like when I, when I stopped dancing, when I stopped, whatever, it's like that door was just closed. Like I, I'm not enough period. Like they're not going to find out I'm enough because I'm just, there's like a line drawn. I, I don't know where, I don't know where my brain was going. Yeah. With that, but I mean, do you, we'll, do you we'll, get what we'll definitely, yeah, we can dive into the, de- the definitions because imposter syndrome can manifest itself in different ways. And we can mm-hmm. definitely talk about that mm-hmm. um, on that upcoming episode, but I, I do get what you're saying. I will say that in my, my personal case, 
I feel like when I have those thoughts or feelings, I feel as though I've been able to fake it to get Mm. to where I am. Mm -hmm. So not that I'm necessarily skilled enough or good enough, but, oh, well, I probably just, I knew the right person or I was in the right, I got lucky. Yeah. Like I, I got lucky. I faked it. Um, yeah, I pulled off a quadruple pirouette, but that's not my usual, you know, whatever in an audition or, or -hmm. whatever it may be. Um, and they're eventually going to catch up with me and figure out that I'm a fraud. (laughs) So that's fun. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we'll definitely dive into that more because I, I yeah. also just don't know very much about it in my own in my own therapy and in my own growth, whatever you want to call it. Um, I haven't dived into yeah. imposter syndrome very much, but I have a feeling it will probably, <laughs> you'll probably start talking about it like, oh, mm-hmm. oh yeah, oh, oh, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> this is a good teaser for that topic for there sure. You go. <laughs> okay, so guys, kind of our last Um, topic we're wanting to go into is things that teachers can be aware of when teaching this age range regarding the anxiety that's going on. So one thing that I I think if you've, we had Terry Hyde on as our last guest, and if you've seen any of his other interviews, something that he really makes a point to share, and I think is very important, is that teachers, if they can, try not to plant those seeds of anxiety. So as a bait, like, I mean, when we're talking those baby levels, those prep levels, when you're understanding how to speak about those feelings that come up, those butterflies, if it's excitement or are you nervous and is being nervous a good thing or a bad thing, right? Like kind of from an early age, what is this child's exposure to quote unquote anxiety and anxious feelings? Mm -hmm. Is it like, oh no, don't be anxious. Or is it like, yeah, sometimes you get butterflies and it's okay. Mm -hmm. I think validating emotions and, and the very, especially the very small ones is so important. Yes. Yes. It's okay to be, um, it's okay. It's okay to feel the feels. And that's where, you know, as a teacher, as a director, as a, however you're going through this growth period, if you're reflecting and wanting to adjust for children is creating that culture. It's fostering that environment where anxious moments are met with empathy and positive acceptance. And like you're talking about validation, it's, it's all very, I don't mean to say you have to make your dance studio all sunshine and rainbows, but at the same time, you have to you have to have space for the feelings that come up because mm-hmm. the feelings are going to come up when you're in a pre-professional program like there's that's just what is and to an extent yeah. it's the inherent nature of children right where mm-hmm. we're learning we're in this stage of life where we don't know exactly what to do and we're looking to outside people and i think one overarching thought that I think I have every time we talk about what teachers can do or how we want to see the landscape of ballet training change is that teachers have to, number one, realize that it's responsibility to make the learning environment safe. Mm-hmm. Whether that's sure they have a good floor, making sure that their CDC guidelines for COVID those are the things that most people think about first, you know, is your liability insurance, you know, up to date. Mm-hmm. But all of these mental health concerns are not something that are in the forefront, I think, of most students and teachers. And it's mm-hmm. our job to make the learning environment emotionally safe for people. 
you mm -hmm. know? So like, like Terry was talking about thinking about how we word our corrections, thinking mm -hmm. about making sure that you're not picking a favorite student, mm -hmm. whether you realize you're doing it or not, like being more yeah. aware of those things is so, so important. I have, a, here we go. You're, you're saying words and you're triggering my brain. Um, so something that both Terry mentioned, but also this memory pops up, right? I, I'm telling you guys, 18 years later, these things um, don't discount what you're going through at a young age because it shows up in interesting mm -hmm. ways. Um, but this idea of when, like when you're talking about corrections and comparing and trying to avoid comparing student to student and being very aware of what language you're using. And I understand that for some, there can be language barriers there. But if that's the case, potentially being more, more aware of what you're saying or getting creative on how to articulate the thoughts in a, in a way that's going to be more appropriately received by the student. But this idea of using pictures instead of peers to like to give for correction. Oh, mm -hmm. this is how you, this is, I don't even know if it's right to say, this is what it looks like when you engage your core. Yeah. But I think it's very important for teachers when you're giving that correction and trying to avoid comparing and making it so specific to the image that's in front of you. If you can address the action of what's happening instead of the visual result. So engage your core not yes look at that stomach that's so flat right those kinds of Ooh. words and things are going to go and i can remember here we are back in that i think 10 or 11 year old baby courtney space and this moment of this where i think she was just standing in first it was just a let's check on posture and alignment in this position and her core was engaged so much it was just what her body was but she just did mm -hmm. not have much in her stomach like visually her that was her body she was a very thin little dancer and her like stomach was concave right it was like it mm -hmm. almost had like an inside swoop mm -hmm. and it I remember I was like why why is that the thing that was mm -hmm. so stuck out to me whereas potentially if the conversation was more about your core is so engaged and when that happens your stomach gets smaller but it's because those muscles are really really working and it helps you hold balance and blah 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 as opposed to look at that that's what it's supposed to look like that's what a dancer is supposed to look like yeah maybe, maybe that's, that's not the healthiest um yeah approach right so it's it's very mm -hmm. um i don't know i i mean this kind of well, gets into other stuff but yeah. So one thing that, so I'm also a certified progressing ballet technique teacher as well. Mm -hmm. And one thing that our, the creator, Marie Walton Mahone, mm -hmm. one thing that she says a lot, especially for this age group that we're focusing on today, mm -hmm. is that it's important for them to get the feeling of things. Yes. So to understand the feeling. So this isn't really anxiety related, but for example, if I'm teaching, you know, I don't know, seven-year-olds to do, we start with the feeling of balance. We feel the rhythm. We sway side to side, almost like if we were uh, using the imagery of being seaweed at the bottom of the ocean and feeling the water flow over our fingers and feeling the waves pushing and pulling us through the water. So we get that resistance. So it's not so uh, choppy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's just so important for, for children to understand that 
they don't necessarily need to be copying a line specifically, like you were talking about with the stomach muscles, but mm-hmm. they need to start developing their own inner consciousness of what something feels like. Right. It's, it's teaching them the feeling and the action behind the feeling and, and getting, you know, starting to get that proprioception going, at, you mm-hmm. know, in a, in a baby's brain, as opposed to this image, this end result. Yes. Because yeah, and that image end result is going to look a little different because every single body is a little bit different. But if your whole classroom is understanding how to engage their core or that feeling of, I'm swaying on Zoom, um, that yeah. feeling of balance, say that's something that is very, like, it, you know, it translates into every, each student mm-hmm. that's in the classroom. Another thing that I think is really important as teachers is the idea of fear-based teaching. So I belong to a lot of Facebook groups for ballet teachers and one teacher put a post up about a disruptive student and wanting to use uh, a reward at the end of the month for you know the the best focused student or, or something like that to re- reward that correct behavior that she wants to see in class. And a lot of teachers responded on this this feed that, oh well, my kids come in every single day and they stretch and they would never be disrespectful in my class and. They, they shouldn't need rewards for good behavior. It's just expected of them. And I just really feel like that type of thinking really encourages fear-based teaching. Um, the, the idea that children should be afraid of their ballet teacher in order to get the results that you want. And I, I just, I mean, I have experienced the, uh, a wide range of teachers. Some I was afraid of and some not, but the I wasn't afraid of, I didn't respect them any less. So I think it's really important for us to to understand that children can have good classroom manners, can have good focus, can have appropriate behavior in, in the studio because they want to, not because they're afraid of the consequences if they don't do the right thing. Oh, I mean, we will get into, I'm sure it will eventually come out. I mentioned, I think in the last episode or two that I definitely had this like mama Courtney approach and classroom etiquette was something that I was very passionate about and tried to instill in my students when I was a teacher. And I think there has to be a middle ground where you're talking about, it's not fear-based, but getting them to understand, don't just yell at them to stop playing with props that aren't yet theirs, but understanding why mm-hmm. should I not, why, why does this prop deserve my respect? Why does the dance studio, why does the Marley deserve my respect? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's not yours. And I, having more of a conversation and an understanding of why dance etiquette is the way it is, because mm-hmm. instead of just this, you know, running around with a stick in your hand <laughs> yes. kind, of, kind of approach, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, to finish up, I mean, we talked so much about a lot of anxiety and our own personal experiences with it in childhood as it was related to our dance training. For any parents out there who are listening, I know Sarah, you have some great pointers to share with them of um, both for parents and teachers on things they could be aware of and next steps they can do. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier in the episode, the information I'm about to give you comes from, it's a website called kidshealth.org and it's from Nemours, which is the non-for-profit health website for kids. And they cover all sorts of different 
types of topics for kids and teens and also for educators too. So it's a really great resource. Um, so basically they're talking about here anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. Just keep in mind everybody that there are different types of anxiety. We are focusing on generalized anxiety because that's the one that affects most people. But some things to watch out for, whether you're a parent or a teacher, that kids with generalized anxiety disorder worry over things that parents might not expect them to worry about. So for example, they could worry about going out to recess. They could worry about lunchtime, you know, who are they sitting with or what's being spoken about, or if they do have um, an eating disorder, you know, what's in their lunchbox, all of those sorts of things. Going to birthday parties. I know that was a big one for me that I got very anxious about. Um, Playtime with friends outside of school, riding the bus, and um, also that kids with generalized anxiety disorder may also worry about war, COVID, obviously, weather, the future, or about loved ones, their own safety, illness, or getting hurt. So these are things that we as adults probably would say, oh, well, kids don't worry about that stuff. It's not even on their radar, but it absolutely can be. Some mm -hmm. symptoms uh, that teachers and parents can look out for for kids are uh, the child being clingy, wanting to miss school or crying because they don't want to go to school or to ballet class. They might act scared or upset or refuse to talk or do things. Kids and teens with anxiety also feel symptoms that others can't see, so it can make them feel afraid, worried, or nervous. It can affect their body. So we've already talked about, Courtney and I, some symptoms that we had, but it can cause um, the child to be shaky or jittery, short of breath, having butterflies in their stomach, uh, having a, a hot face, like their face gets really mm -hmm. warm clammy hands, dry mouth, and racing heart. So those are all some possible physiological symptoms that they can experience. So those are things that, you know, we, we really want to look for, you know, if you have, a, for example, teachers, if you have a student who, despite going to the bathroom before class starts, they can't get through a 60-minute class without asking to go to the bathroom every single week. That's probably something you'd want to share with their parent. Mm -hmm. um, because it could be physiological and they need to see their pediatrician, or it could be a mental condition that also needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are the symptoms from, from the website. So just talking about intervention, parents and teachers really have to have open communication. So if you don't feel like you have open communication at your studio, that's usually a red flag that we've kind of talked about before, <laughs> you should be able to have an open conversation with the director of your school and or your, your child's personal teacher. So, mm -hmm. and teachers, same thing with parents. It's okay to pull your parent aside and say, hey, Sally has a tummy ache every single week. We need to talk about if she doesn't want to be here or if she's mm -hmm. having some problems at home that are reflected in her classes and things mm -hmm. like that. So just having that open communication between teacher and student teacher, student, and parent is so, so important. Um, the other thing that I thought about too that's important for teachers to keep in mind is that some kids have sensory issues, whether it's, you know, wearing a long sleeve leotard makes them, you know, feel itchy or, and that can cause anxiety. Perhaps your music could be a little bit softer. The music is too loud and it's making someone feel anxious. And even I know personally, fluorescent lights give me a migraine and makes me anxious. So there, there are certain things that, again, it's our responsibility as educators to make sure that our 
our learning environment is just that. It's a learning environment and it is not a breeding ground for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Oof. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh, um, we're going to give you the websites where I got this information. Um, and again, we'll put this down in the show notes, but um, there's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. That's A, D as in dog, AA.org. And they have a ton of helpful articles and they also have a screening tool that if you feel like you yourself have anxiety or your child, there's a quick little screening tool you can use on their website and that'll kind of help you to find the right healthcare professional as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all of that information and resources. Who's to say my childhood experience, my peers' childhood experiences could have come out a little differently if we, if parents Mm -hmm. had more awareness, if teachers had more awareness and these resources were um, more readily available. So, whoa, to wrap up, uh, what an episode. (laughs) I'm so, I'm really excited that we got to share, got to share this information and um, Mm -hmm. hear a little bit too for you, Sarah. I mean, like we said, we haven't heard a lot of this other than, you know, we want to keep it fresh. So we save it for the podcast. Um, and thank you, thank you so much for sharing sharing what oh, you did today. You. I really I really appreciate you being letting us into your world a little bit. Yeah, likewise. It's it's been very revealing. And every time I see that picture of baby Courtney <laughs> on the Instagram, I'll just give her a little hug. <laughs> I also wanted to finish up with something, some wisdom from my mother, my yes. mom. Um, something uh-huh. that she's said to me. Uh, like over the last few years, probably, but more so as we've had some discussions about this podcast and reflecting on my experience and choices we made back then, that you do the best you can with the knowledge you have at the time. And I think that is such a very Mm. clear and respectful and understanding quote to Mm -hmm. quote my mama on the podcast. But you really do, you know, to think back on how we did then, we did we did. We did the best we, with the knowledge we had at the time. And now that we know better, we're going to do better. And I know that kind of segues right to our, our yeah. quote that Sarah's going to share. Yeah. This quote that I'd like to share with you today is from Maya Angelou. And it's, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I think both of those quotes together just give us so much grace. You know, it's giving grace to our parents because Mm -hmm. I truly believe that my parents did the best that they could. And I'm so grateful that I had them to support Mm me. And I myself as a teacher am reflecting through this time on how I teach and what habits I might have taken that were not the best from my, my childhood. And and just cutting those out of my teaching practices now because I, I did the best I could until I knew better. And now I know better. I'm trying to do better. And I, I right. hope that that process continues the rest of my life. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of turning back to a little bit what Terry said too, as far as growth mindset, right? Don't get, don't, mm-hmm. don't get stuck. Don't get fixed on one idea. You can grow, you can learn. And yeah. Um, and I hope that, you know, for parents listening, that you understand that None of this is coming from a place of shame. None of this is coming from a place of guilt, but rather just opening the door a little bit on people who've been there, heard that, mm-hmm. seen that, experienced that, and are on the <laughs> other side. Every former dancer has the right to their own opinion, and, and, and this is mine. <laughs> um, so there you go. So Sarah, Very to good. finish up, we, we mm-hmm. are doing this question with everyone. 
what advice, Sarah, would you give to yourself as a young dancer? Well, you know, I think the, the smart answer is nothing because I wouldn't be who I am today, but <sighs> I can't say that. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not to that point yet in my recovery, I don't think. <laughs> so I would say if I had little Sarah in front of me, who was not great at pirouettes, who was very bendy and very flexible, but had little control over anything she did. <laughs> I would tell her to start a journal, a dance journal, because I did keep a dance hmm. journal, but it was only corrections. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down every correction I got pretty much in, a, in an attempt to memorize things better. Um, but I, I would tell myself to start a a dance journal and I would ask myself to write down what my body could do and oh. what my goals are artistically, not technically, not to get four pirouettes on both sides, but what do you want to do artistically? What what kind of mark do you want to leave in the world as a as an artist? And what are some things that you have accomplished and that your body can do because it's your body. Mm -hmm. Focusing on progress and not perfection, just appreciating the journey, appreciating the progress from getting from A to B and not just focusing on B. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's the advice I would give is to, to start a dance journal that focuses on what you can do, what you have done, and artistically who you want to be. I think that is such a beautiful sentiment and also very inspiring for, I mean, if you're a parent listening, maybe have them listen, have them start their own <laughs> uh, journal and inspiration yeah. from Sarah. I think that's so, I think it's so beautiful because in my experience, I feel like the only experience with dance journals has been something about, it has this negative energy to it, right? It's this book mm. of all the things you couldn't do right. And <laughs> instead turning that around and making it something that is an, a source of inspiration and a source of motivation, right? These are my goals. Yeah. This is what I know I can accomplish. And this is what I'm going to mm -hmm. accomplish. Yeah. Instead and I think of, on days, yeah. days when you're having a, an off day or you had a terrible rehearsal or you got injured and you're struggling through that. I mean, that's something you can open that book when you don't have the energy yourself in that moment to, to, to perk yourself up or to say an affirmation out loud, because let's be honest, we emotionally sometimes just don't have it in us. We can open that book of things that we've written in the past. Mm -hmm. And those, those thoughts, those truths can help us in our times of need. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, okay. We're going to finish up today, guys. Yes. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we can't wait to talk to you next time. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, we'd be so thankful if you'd leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts and share our podcast with your people to help us get the word out. If you have any particular topics you'd like to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, you can email those along with your questions to dancebetterpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at dancebetterpodcast. To catch us in our own lanes, you can follow me over on Instagram at Court Ulrich, that's C-O-U-R-T, 
U-L-R-I-C-H, to follow me on my journey of intentional wellness as a 20-something dog mom, mental health, natural living, all things Courtney. Awesome. And you can follow me, Sarah, on Instagram at Tech Ballet, that's T-E-C-H-B-A-L-L-E-T, for more information on my virtual ballet programs. I integrate mindfulness work, journaling about body and technique positivity, and injury prevention so that every dancer that steps into my class feels empowered to explore their movement from a whole body wellness approach. Thanks again for listening, you guys. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.